my home state. Well, that's us, WPKN in Bridgeport. And my name is Richard Hill. It's time for resistant. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's time for Mike Check, which comes to you every Sunday at 5.30 p.m., just before Ralph Nader. And uh, we're going to kick it off with our musical theme, and we'll be back in a minute to tell you about the show. Thanks for joining us for this week's ver version of Mike Check, which comes to you every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. My name is Richard Hill. We have a rotating roster of hosts, and I am one of them. I come to you on the second Sunday of each month. And Mike Check is a show that uh, grapples with global, national, and regional issues and their impact on our local communities. And... Uh, so what we're going to do today is to uh, talk about something that's uh, happening right here in Connecticut. And for that, we have a special guest, uh, Chris George, who is the executive director of IRIS, which is Integrated Refugee and Immigration S Immigrant Services. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, refugee resettlement is a perfect global, national and regional subject. So... I'm delighted to be on the show. Yeah, we, we, we hit the bullseye today with this one. Um, well, certainly um, we have had uh, so much about the, the refugee issue that's been in focus for the past four and a half, five years through the uh, sort of uh, 
I, I guess you could describe it as a uh, dead zone of the of the Trump administration when refugee uh, resettlement was basically almost shut off at the spigot. Um, but why right. don't you, why don't, mm-hmm. why, before we get into the topic, though, some people may not be familiar with IRIS. And uh, so why don't you just give us uh, a little bit about the background for, of your organization and whether it's a, a state, uh, a regional, or a, actually a national organization? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Richard. Um, so IRIS, Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services, has been around since 1982, uh, we were called Interfaith Refugee Ministry at the time. We were created by the Episcopal Church of Connecticut back in 1982. That was a couple of years after the Refugee Act was signed by Congress, uh, dedicating um, funding and uh, a structure for resettling refugees in the United States. And we're one of about 200 nonprofit organizations spread across the United States, uh, whose job it is to welcome refugees who have been selected and vetted by the U.S. government, Department of State. We welcome them to the United States and get them off to a good start. Now, these are people who've suffered persecution. That's the definition of a refugee, a person who was forced to flee their home country because they were persecuted. And the U.S has historically had the largest refugee resettlement program in the world. Uh, most years, we will welcome more refugees to the United States than all of the other governments with refugee programs put together. Um, and that's usually around 80 to 90,000. Um, you're right, though, uh, Richard, it dropped down very low under the previous administration dropped down to about 10, 15,000 a year. But it's going back up there now, um, mainly because of the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and the almost 100,000 Afghan evacuees that have been brought to the United States. Thanks for that background. Very, uh, very helpful to, uh, to orient us to, to, to this discussion. So, um, yeah, so I, I guess the cre- question arises, uh, what kind of um, vetting has been possible with the Afghan, the influx of Afghan refugees who, who were so precipitously uh, rushed out of the country and continue, I guess, to, do, to be so? Um, we know that the uh, vetting process for refugees to, to enter the United States is incredibly uh, thorough and, um, and in-depth. Has that been sustained and or changed during this uh, Afghan crisis? The U.S. government put more people, more resources into the vetting process so that the Afghans coming to the United States before they set foot in the United States, go through that same rigorous vetting process. The FBI is involved, the CIA, there are interviews, all sorts of databases um, are uh, checked to make sure um, no one is, is coming to the United States for the wrong reasons. 
keep in mind a lot of these people, in fact, most of the people, um, have already been vetted uh, before they were hired to work for the United States government during its 20 years in Afghanistan. The, the majority, the vast majority of the uh, Afghans who've come and their families, they worked with the U.S. government. So they were vetted um, for that job, and then they were vetted a second time before they were brought to the United States. Uh-huh. That's interesting. So um, let's talk a little bit about the operation and this uh, process that's been happening in Connecticut here. Can you give mm-hmm. us a sense, an overview of how many mm-hmm. Afghan refugees have been brought to, to Connecticut and, and continue to come? Uh, right. What are some of the numbers um, and some mm-hmm. of the uh, destinations? Right. Um, well, um, it's been a lot of people over a very short period of time, and that's what's made it such a challenge. Um Typically, we would resettle maybe two, three, four hundred refugees um, spread over a 12-month period in a year. And, and our job is to find an apartment, furnish the apartment with donated furniture, stock the kitchen with food, get it ready, meet the family when they arrive, uh, get them settled in their apartment. Uh, connect them to health care over the, the next few days, enroll the kids in school, help the parents learn English, and help them get jobs. And, um, you know, we are used to doing that uh, quickly. We don't get that much money from the government. Um, but when 400 people, and that's how many Afghan evacuees, have arrived to IRIS over the past uh, three months, when 400 people come, in, in just three months, it can be a real challenge. Um, we would typically, in the old days, get two or three weeks' notice for one family to arrive, and we would welcome one family, uh, no more than one a day. Um, it, these days, we are getting maybe two or three days' notice, and sometimes four or five families come uh, in one day. So it's been difficult. Most of them... Um, most of these Afghan families have been resettling in the New Haven area because they're following that age-old pattern of immigration that most Americans uh, have experienced over the past few hundred years. And that is when a new family comes to this country, they will go to where they have friends or relatives. And there happens to be a growing Afghan community. It's been growing for the past five or six years in the New Haven area. And they have invited, I think this is a tribute to Connecticut and New Haven, they've invited the new arrivals to come and, and, and live in New Haven. So probably around 300 have been resettled in the New Haven area. Um, about 40 or 50 so far in the Hartford area. We have an office in Hartford, and we have staff there. And then I'd say about 60 to 70 maybe are resettled with community groups spread all over the state from Old Lyme to New London, West Hartford, Stamford, Bridgeport, uh, Waterbury, 
Stamford, Glastonbury, Middletown. These are groups of volunteers who have stepped forward, have been trained by my staff, and we have placed an Afghan refugee family with them. And they're doing all the things that my staff would normally do. I mentioned it before, find the apartment, enroll the kids in school, connect them to health care, help them learn English, help them find jobs. And, it, and they do a great job. So we use both approaches, staff doing the work or community groups doing the work. How, how big is your staff, actually? Well, it's grown. Uh, over the past couple of years, it's grown from 50 to 75. Um, uh, we have been blessed with a lot of support from the community, uh, and the government is increasing the size of its grants. So most of our work is person-to-person, case managers, job developers, education coordinators, tutors. So as more people come to keep up with the workload, we need to hire more staff. So we, we have been hiring. In fact, a lot of the people we're hiring are are people who came through the refugee program um, in the past, in, including a lot of Afghans who speak the language of, of Afghanistan, Dari or Pashto. Hmm. Interesting. We're speaking with Chris George. He's the executive director of IRIS, Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services. We're talking, focusing specifically on Afghan resettlement here in Connecticut, and um, we've learned that uh, New Haven has been the, the largest recipient of these refugees, but uh, Hartford is, is up there as well, and uh, there are some uh, smaller communities around the state that are participating and, uh, you know, finding, finding facilities and, and uh, care and comfort for these people. What what kinds of um, what kinds of of, of of facilities are provided? In other words, is the goal to to get every family into its its own apartment, or are there some situations? I mean, I think I've seen notices in uh, in some of our local press. Of do you have a room in your house that you could you could mm-hmm. uh, share? It, how, how much, what's the, the breakdown between apartments or or even small houses available to these right, folks right. versus, uh, you know, parts of houses, sharing of right. space? Yeah, good question. So when, they're com- uh, when, when refugees are arriving really quickly, four or five uh, a day, large families, and we are not able to find apartments ahead of time, then we look for temporary accommodations. And temporary housing could be squeeze into the apartment of your relative who, you know, has lived in New Haven for five uh, years, or we'll put you in, uh, in a hotel, um, which in the past we rarely did, but we're doing a lot of that these days, or some kind-hearted, uh, generous person uh, who has a, a house, maybe a big house with a, a wing that is separate with a separate bathroom and and two or three bedrooms, uh, maybe that they used for in-laws or or maybe they rented. Uh, yes, we'll put families there. Um, 
but eventually, uh, Richard, we want to move them into their own apartment and, and help them, you know, get get some control over their lives again. We don't we don't want a family from Afghanistan to be in a temporary place uh, for too long. We want them to have their own place, get jobs, become self-sufficient, and uh, and integrate into the community. And tell you, the response from Connecticut has been amazing. People have been so generous and kind um, and compassionate. Um, and so many groups have formed. I mean, already we've got um, 12 groups that have received families. And there are another uh, 12 that are in the final stages of preparation, uh, training, before they receive families. And I should mention, Richard, this this approach, this model of refugee resettlement, where a community group of volunteers is trained and we place the family with them and they do everything, that's not happening everywhere. Um, Connecticut is the leader in this kind of refugee resettlement, community-based co-sponsorship. It is catching on. Other states are taking notice. Other refugee resettlement organizations around the country are looking to IRIS and Connecticut to see how it's done. We've been doing training programs for the past few months, helping other refugee agencies uh, stand up programs like this. So uh, hats off to Connecticut. Uh, all of your listeners who are born and raised here, they should be feeling proud that Connecticut is really setting an example for the rest of the, com- uh, the, west- the, rest of the country on-, on how to resettle refugees. Well, you know, one can't imagine uh, or, or help but imagine that there might be some community discomfort with this influx such such a large number of people coming, as you said, at, at one time uh, into mm-hmm. the state of Connecticut. Uh, how, how did you, in the past, gauge that kind of response that there might be pushback from the community or resistance? And is any of that in evidence now? Um, so I've, I've been the executive director of IRIS for 16 years. And we've resettled thousands of refugees from all over the world, Middle East, Africa, parts of Asia, uh, Latin America. And I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times people have criticized this program. I mean, welcoming persecuted people from all over the world in the spirit of the Statue of Liberty and helping them start new lives in this country is our most noble and oldest American tradition. It is as American as apple pie and baseball. And people see it that way in Connecticut. Now, sure, when a lot of refugees come to one location in a short period of time, there can be a capacity issue. So, yes, we're talking with the school district in New Haven about all of the students that are coming into the school district. And we're having conversations with Yale New Haven Hospital. Both of them are wonderful partners, the school district, the hospital. I mean, I think we're the envy of other refugee agencies to have such terrific partners in education and healthcare. But 
so many people coming over a short period of time, it can be a challenge. So that's another reason, Richard, why we are promoting this community-based program that spreads the families around all over the state, puts them in communities where there are no other refugees. So how does the school system like New Haven, let's say, for example, uh, meet that challenge in terms of the influx of people who, and that's another question I have for you, is how many of these people are actually uh, fluent in English and and the ones that are not? How, how are they navigating mm-hmm. this uh, process of getting, getting into the schools and, and functioning there? Yeah, well, good question. Well, New Haven school system has a ton of experience welcoming students who do not speak English, um, English language learners. Um, so, and and they've been extremely welcoming of, of, of refugee kids. Um, they will have in some schools um, what they call a welcome center. So they'll have a one or two rooms that are set up with teachers uh, who might speak the language of these kids, um, giving them special uh, assistance in learning English, special assistance in getting up to speed. Um, so that's how the New Haven schools deal with them. But if those, if those classrooms become full, then you've got to do something else. And the alternative is, is to uh, mainstream those, to put the kid you know, in the classrooms without any help. We are hiring tutors who will supplement the New Haven school um, resources so that these kids get what they need. So Iris will step in and, um, and hire staff who can, who can work with these kids uh, in the schools so that the, the kids get what they need. But it's a challenge, um, and the main thing is to let the schools know and the healthcare system know we are here to help you. We're not just dropping off these kids and saying, you know, educate them. We're, we're partners in this. The last thing a refugee resettlement agency wants is for people to start grumbling about the number of these refugees coming to the community. We want this to be a positive experience. We want people to, to welcome refugees and to see all the great gifts that they bring to the community. I mean, they'll be starting businesses soon. There'll be, they'll be stimulating the economy by, by being hired for these jobs that have sat open for, for months. Um, soccer coaches uh, in particular are thrilled to welcome hmm. refugee students to the schools across the state. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, the, um, you know, I, I uh, had an experience for years working, uh, d- doing these special classes at Hill House High School where they have um, a very large actual immigrant population from mm-hmm. um, different parts of Africa and uh, around the world. And um, we, we, the situation there was, it was a very interesting kind of setup where they'd, they'd bring me in to teach actually a salsa dance class <laughs> to... Uh, this um, group of, of, of students, most of mm-hmm. whom most of whom were New Haven uh, 
student pe- people, but uh, uh, maybe 25, 30 percent were immigrants who didn't speak, mm-hmm. did not speak English. And um, so the idea was to get them all to dance together and change partners and and try to, uh, you know, get some sort of a sense of connection and bonding between uh, people who um, clearly were not uh, off right right off the jump ready to mm-hmm. to, to be com- completely comfortable with each other so so that was um, Hill House high School was a, was a, a real good example of, of I've had a lot of experience with with immigrant students can, can you tell us give us some examples of some of the schools in New Haven that are enfolding these uh, Afghan uh, young people into their programs now? Yeah, the um, uh, Fairhaven uh, Elementary um, uh, has a uh, welcome center. Um, uh, And I can't remember the name of another. There's another middle school in New Haven that has also developed a welcome center. What the school district does is, if they can, they will channel the English language learners into particular schools that are staffed with English language teachers and have these welcome centers. Um, and the, uh, the students and the families, the parents are encouraged to send the kids to those schools. Not every kid will go to those schools. Um, and they may be in a school that doesn't have a welcome center. And if that's the case, the school will, will, will bring in tutors or IRIS will bring in tutors. Um, but it's, um, in the beginning, it's a challenge. There's, um, you know, there's no, no way around it. It's, it's tough. It's tough for these kids as well. But they learn English so quickly, faster than their parents, before you know it. These kids are interpreting for their parents. They're talking to the landlord. They're interpreting with the landlord. They're interpreting with, you know, the electrician who comes in to fix uh, something. Um, We try to limit the amount of interpretation they do uh, in meetings with us. And, of course, they're not allowed to interpret in uh, healthcare uh, meetings. But uh, the kids learn English quickly. The parents take longer. But they'll learn enough to get through a job interview and uh, and to be hired. You know, every now and then you'll hear somebody say, you know, who may not really know the, the reality, you'll hear somebody say, oh, these immigrants, these refugees, they are taking jobs from Americans. That is baloney. They are not taking anything. They're being hired. Um, they're being hired by supervisors, by managers, by, by business owners who interview candidates and then hire who they think will be the best. Um, refugees and immigrants aren't taking jobs. They're being selected by companies to have the jobs. And, um, and, and, and they're, you know, tough, hardworking people, um, they will start talking about their desire to work um, minutes after they arrive. I've, I've met people who've arrived late at night. I've picked up people and driven them to their apartments. And the conversation immediately goes to, I want to work. Where can I work? What are the jobs available? 
And, and, and what are some of those jobs? And I, I just want to mention that we're actually coming down to our last two minutes together. So, mm-hmm. um, but what are, what are some of the jobs that uh, have, have uh, been good. prominent yeah, good, in, in this? Good, good question. Most, most refugees, if they don't speak English really well, they will gravitate toward jobs in factories, uh, small factories uh, that don't require a lot of English. They'll take jobs at the Amazon uh, distribution center uh, in, in Windsor or in North Haven. Uh, they'll take jobs uh, in hotel housekeeping. Uh, they might get a job working in, a, in the kitchen of a restaurant. Uh, these are the typical jobs um, around minimum wage that refugees will generally take when they first arrive. And those who have English skills um, can get jobs that are uh, a bit higher than minimum wage. Um, and uh, many of them are coming in because we've all heard that some of these Afghans worked as interpreters uh, for the um, United States during those years. That's right. We, we, we did hear all about that. Well, I just want to mention that it's, uh, you know, as our <coughs> mic check show winds down, I want to thank Chris George executive director of IRIS, Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services, for being with us today and explaining this uh, very um, dynamic and, turns out, successful change of direction in the the, uh, immigrant uh, resettlement situation from the previous administration to the one right now. I thank you, Chris, so much for joining us. And uh, thank you. Good luck. Thank you very much, Richard. And all your listeners, if they're interested, they could jump on our website and form a group. We'll train them. Before you know it, they will be welcoming an Afghan family to their community. (laughs) Thank you so much, Chris. We'll be in touch. Let's let's keep tabs on each other here. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. And this has been Mike Check. Stay tuned for the Ralph Nader. I'm Tom Morello, and you're listening to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. When you say episode 405, does that mean we've done 405 episodes? We have done 405 episodes. That is correct. And we've got 406 next week which we're very excited about because it's going to be our first live Zoom recording where we'll have a live Zoom studio audience, in essence. So sign up for that at ralphnaderradiohour.com. And we also have the man of the hour. He'll be there. Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Uh, I just wrote a column that reflected some of the frustrations of our listeners that they hear week after week exposés and nothing seems to happen. And so I wrote a unusual